All right, everybody. This is uh, Andy and Greg coming to you again here, this time together in a small two-by-two room phone booth in uh, Chicago here at the uh, WeWork facility. We just happen to be together here at RSNA this year again and uh, realized that we had uh, a podcast to record here, but it's a bit of an interesting one, a little different one than normal and uh, not not a good way, unfortunately. Uh, as many of you may have heard, one of our co-founders here at Echo, uh, Dr. Janusz Brzezik, uh, passed away recently. He'd been uh, you know, a partner in, uh, in business with our CEO, Sandeep, for over 15 years and uh, you know, a big loss for the company and for a lot of the people as, as individuals within our company. You know, Janusz was uh, commonly referred to as as the father of sensors, actually, and uh, was a pioneer in the development of MEMS technology, and and really was a driving force behind you know a ton of innovations that have uh, kind of actually reshaped how technology can be used uh, today to uh, you know improve the lives of those around the world. So, anything you want to add to that, Greg? Sure. Really, with with Janusz's passing, it it leaves us all without really the words to right. convey properly. Uh, you know how we all feel, but we were fortunate enough early on to have Yonish as our first podcast interview. Yeah, he was the first one we ever did, and, and yeah, we have never before aired portions of that interview that we'd like to share with you today. Because who better to share the story of their life and their views than Yonish himself? That's right. That's right. We had a a huge interview, wide ranging with him, lasted about 45 minutes actually. We were only able to use a part of it, the first part of it the first time around, and so we've got uh you know, the second half that we'd been intending to to release at some point in another podcast. And in this case, unfortunately, now I guess seems like the right time to do it. So, with without further ado, we'll uh we'll let Janish do all the talking from here. This is uh, this is uh, again. It's a great opportunity to to have you share some of your your background with us. You know, Janusz Brzezik has been all over the place, all over the world, in so many different companies and so many different organizations, and has been an integral part of so many of these different uh, these different businesses. And you know, Greg and I over time have have kind of gotten you know little glimpses into your your expansive career and life. Uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, and of course, before that, um, you know, needless to say, it's it's been pretty fascinating to to hear some of your experiences. And so, you know, if you're willing to explore some of that with us today, um, you know, we're we're really grateful for that. And and perhaps we could just start things off by you sharing with us a little bit about the beginning of your journey. You know, maybe you know, start from from when you when you arrived here in the U.S. and and ultimately kind of uh, walked your way all the way to to here at Echo. So uh, I grew up in Poland, and uh, I was working for the company that have acquired the license from uh, Honeywell in uh, Colorado and uh, Minneapolis for the family of pressure transducers. So when I found myself in the U.S. with $300, wife and two kids, uh, I was hoping that uh, I would get an employment at Honeywell. Uh, I w they invited me for the interview. Chief engineer said that the, he wanted me badly because I knew all the aspects of the products. But when I arrived for the interview, they didn't let me on the premises. I was absolutely shocked. And uh, since I was there before, 
I went through the employee entrance and found from the employees that uh, the sales manager for Eastern Europe uh, called the day before and forced general manager of Fort Washington plant not to hire me because he was negotiating a $20 million order with the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and since I defected, uh, he was afraid that, that Soviet Union may cancel the order because of me. Really? So this was pretty shocking. Uh, the engineers gave me the pointer to Foxborough in Massachusetts, which resulted later uh, in the job in San Jose. Foxborough acquired the first spin-out from Fairchild, and I found myself a few months later in San Jose working uh, on pressure transducers in the first spin-out from mother company Fairchild. Wow. Well, wow. when you think <laughs> when you think of that, you show up with your family, you have uh, $300 in your pocket and you have high hopes, right? You 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 know a lot about the company. You're ready to walk up and get access and you find out all this behind the scenes activity is going on uh, that's preventing you from your goal. Uh, that must have been that must have been trying times to say the oh, least. Very stressful. And what was kind of interesting uh, a few years later at one of the shows, I met uh, Hannibal people, and at this time, I developed the world's first disposable blood pressure sensor. Uh, one of the competitors was Honeywell, and we displaced Honeywell. Uh, so this was kind of a 30 million unit market at around uh, $25, so it was a large chunk of the market. And the Honeywell manager told me that uh, this was the worst decision Honeywell could make uh, when I came. By not hiring me. Kind of like Apple firing Steve Jobs, you know, yes. kind of one of those things. <laughs> well, and it's also interesting to, to think about how, you know, you're, that you were, you know, the reason why they didn't hire you was because of what could have been a, an international incident, essentially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's got very early on getting right in the middle of it all. Uh, so it's a, it's quite a beginning to things. Um, you know, I, I, I'm interested, you know, as we kind of fast forward a little bit here to where you're at in, in more recent times here. Because I think you did this, you know, a few years ago. You can let us know exactly when it was. But um, you know, you mentioned that you went to, uh, you know, you spent some time at Stanford, right? Um, going through a, a you know, a, an educational program there. Um, and I and think we're curious. You know, it sounds like that that had had a lot of influence, especially recently, um, in the way you used to look at things in terms of you know the companies or the products that you got involved with or maybe started um, versus how you look at things now. And so I'm curious. You know, first of all, what was that education about? And then secondly, how does that, how did that shape your view? You know, how did, how did you view things before that education? And then, and then how did it shape your view afterward? So from my uh, third startup, uh, I signed up uh, for the executive management program at Stanford. The program was uh, fantastic. Uh, it looked uh, from my perspective as driving the car with dirty uh, windshield and then Stanford turned on the wiper washer cleaning the window to see through. <laughs> they gave us references how other companies were solving uh, different problems and what is the best strategy for forming and running uh, the company. So probably the biggest change uh, from what I heard was that in previous startups uh, me and my partners were developing a better gadget uh, hoping that somebody will buy it. At Stanford, they were teaching us to start with unfulfilled market need and then selecting technology and design to fill 
the gap in the marketplace. So this was kind of uh, upside down strategy from what we are implementing and also what other uh, engineers, my friends, were implementing forming the startups. So this was kind of interesting because uh, in the next startups I was trying to go from the market to the product. However, uh, we had some exceptions. Uh, at, uh, in Vincennes, this is one of the companies we formed. Uh, my partner, uh, with whom I was in the few previous startups, got an itch to develop integrated uh, gyroscope. So we started development based on bits and pieces of technology we developed in previous startups. Uh, this uh, resulted in highly integrated gyro, very inexpensive. And everybody was telling us that there is no market for this device. And my investors who ordered from me uh, development of the new startup, I didn't believe that uh, this may make sense and asked me to do something else. So after we created the foundation for Invencence, I left and formed another company developing uh, wireless tire pressure sensors in response to forthcoming US government regulation mandating the use of the sensors on all cars. So it was very clearly defined, a very large market. So Invencence uh, went forward with my partner, and a few years later, uh, the new applications emerged in video games and mobile devices, and Invencence did a billion-dollar IPO. So for me, it was kind of interesting <laughs> that it violated the Stanford rule, and then I came to the conclusion that Stanford rule I was looking at continuous innovation and the rules for disruptive innovation, uh, such as this gyroscope or such as Google, Apple, and uh, many other companies introducing the product that doesn't exist, are different. And this probably may be the best characterized by uh, the quote from Henry Ford, who said that if I would ask uh, people what they want, they would say, I would like to get a faster horse. The car wasn't invented at this time. So all the disruptive technologies have slightly different rules of the game. <laughs> that's an interesting example. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And, and it's one thing to, you know, to advance within a, a space and to win. There's plenty of ways to win, even in existing markets, right? There's plenty of ways to find opportunity there but it is also interesting when you when you're talking with somebody like yourself and you know a number of the other folks here at echo um you know who have been integral in creating new technologies and new markets right um creating something from from nothing and i think that happens a lot particularly obviously out in this in silicon valley and in in, in you know high technology um and it's important for us to kind of keep that in mind as as we go that you know, uh, that new things can happen that completely change uh, the way that, that people look at, at, uh, at technology and, and the way we do something. So, um, and, you know, I, I think uh, <clears throat> in, in the world of, of uh, you know, of, of healthcare, right, people are also very, um, you know, people are, we, we, we embrace advancement, but at the same time, we have to do it in a way that, um, you know, that, that, keeps the patient in mind first, right? And so I think it, it's, you don't see this as much in the healthcare space where we, you know, where we try and do something completely different or where things are completely, you know, new market is, is, is created and blue ocean is created. But 
Um, but there still are opportunities for that, and I think that's uh, that's obviously something what you see in what we're doing here. Um, you know, in, in the way one of the reasons you probably uh, you know decided that healthcare was the next next big space for us. Yeah. Do you have Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, how does this apply to healthcare for you? So uh, when we are looking at the largest economic tides in the world, there are a few of them, and they were nicely characterized by Peter Diamandis, one of the biggest visionaries of our times, in his book Abundance. Uh, so uh, he outlined the vision of the world uh, that in about 15 years from now uh, should converge on the world with no hunger, with medical care to all, a clean environment and clean power uh, to all the people on earth. And uh, as you can see, out of the four areas that he focused was the healthcare. Uh, we need to bring the healthcare to everybody. And technology allows us uh, to enable this. We have uh, multiple uh, ways in technology that are changing already healthcare in a very visible way. Uh, one of them is artificial intelligence, but another one is uh, sensors, health sensors, enabling us to uh, detect and then uh, possibly cure and prevent uh, different diseases. And uh, I got involved with uh, Peter's uh, wave uh, for the abundance, and from this uh, interaction I found that 75% uh, of the world doesn't have access to medical imaging. And medical imaging is pretty important because uh, imaging can dramatically, early imaging can dramatically reduce the cost of healthcare because you can detect problems early. And a World Health Organization uh, recommends to use ultrasound imaging because it's safe, uh, contrary to uh, X-ray and uh, MRI. There's no ionization, there is no radiation. Does it safe? Uh, and uh, uh, taking this input, I started to look at the possibility of forming uh, the company that can fill this gap. So I started from the market need. Sandeep uh, uh, helped me uh, to refine this uh, direction by getting encouragement from Apple. And uh, we started to look what would be needed. Uh, in early 2000s, I was involved in the first spin-out from Stanford. Uh, which developed the ultrasound imaging. It was called Sensam. They uh, developed technology based on uh, capacitive silicon sensors, CMATs. They were acquired later by uh, Siemens. So when I created this idea, I went to my friends from Sensam, who already left uh, Siemens, and uh, they strongly recommended that in order to make the dent in the market, we need to develop an easy-to-use, low-cost 3D ultrasound imager. And 3D because most of the doctors cannot translate a 2D image into 3D image. Low-cost because uh, many of the countries don't have uh, funds to uh, get the expensive equipment. And uh, the... Uh, device should be handheld, so it's easy to use, can be carried by the doctors in the pocket. So we started to do feasibility study, if it's possible, to translate uh, the device, uh, which with 3D imaging was on a good level, about quarter million dollars, to a handheld device on the order of 1000 or $2,000. 
and this was the start of ECHO. After uh, about a year, we converged on the technology path that could enable this, and uh, this was based on PMAT, a new type of uh, silicon uh, semiconductor transducer. And we started with the transducer after we proved that it can work, and this was a great job by Sandeep, uh, uh, trying to pick big pieces of technology and stitch them together to develop uh, high-performance imaging. After we proved that this can work, uh, we brought uh, venture capital. And what was interesting, the leading uh, venture firm uh, for Series A funding for us was Bolt Capital. And this was the venture firm that was formed by Peter Diamandis to enable uh, funding the companies that are impacting the world. And we are very grateful for this opportunity that Peter uh, gave us. Giannis, tons of great information there. I, I'm curious, you know, obviously you're not looking to build a faster horse, if we go back to your, your quote there, which a lot of the market was solely focused on, especially in North America. You're trying to solve a bigger need. Uh, you did a feasibility study. Obviously, you needed to get to a low-cost high quality imaging device. I'm curious, how did you get to the from that to the PMUT technology? What drove you to that? Why was that the right technology that was gonna enable you to make that leap? So when we are looking at uh, the cost structure, uh, typically uh, the disruptive cost curve was created by utilization of semiconductor devices. The, the first uh, ultrasound transducer based on semiconductor technology was CMAT capacitive sensor. Uh, we had a ton of experience in capacitive sensing from the previous startups, uh, developed uh, super sensitive pressure, acceleration, sensors, gyros, mirrors, and so on, all of them uh, utilizing, in a sense, CMAT technology for sensing. Uh, however, uh, when we started to look at the uh, performance, we found that CMAT had multiple uh, restrictions and from the cost point of view, it was also requiring a high voltage to drive and high voltage to sense, which was requiring high voltage electronics, which wasn't uh, very uh, inexpensive. In parallel, uh, in the world, there was a new technology emerging. This was piezo film technology uh, for inkjet printers initially. And uh, this technology was using thin, thin layers of piezo material. And as uh, maybe some of you know, maj uh, majority of the imagers for ultrasound in the world are uh, based on piezo crystals. So piezo film uh, uh, was promising to deliver uh, comparable performance to piezo crystals, but at much lower cost and much smaller uh, form factor, leading to the high level of integration, which in turn I was promising a lower cost. So we looked around and what was interesting with piezo films, it was very extensive research done by multiple research organizations and selected companies. And over the previous uh, 15 years, uh, due to this uh, funding of research, the performance of the piezo films uh, increased almost 50 times uh, uh, to almost match the performance of the uh, single crystal devices. So this was very, very encouraging. And uh, in addition to this, there were several uh, foundries uh, that were producing piezo film devices in uh, large volume for 
inkjet printers, uh, for autofocus cameras, uh, for gyroscopes and other devices. So the infrastructure started to emerge. So we decided to uh, take the state of the art uh, in piezo films and combine this with the novel design to create a new generation of uh, piezo transducers for medical imaging. The first efforts resulted in a very poor performance. One of our consultants used this from one of the Silicon Valley startups, but uh, the performance were uh, such that uh, he couldn't get good images. So some of the breakthroughs we've done enabled to bypass uh, the limitations of the then existing uh, PMAT technology, and we got a high performance uh, on silicon chips, which were promising low cost. So I think uh, this was a convergence of uh, several different trends in the market, uh, emergence of the new uh, piezofilm materials, emergence of new piezofilm deposition technology, emergence of new designs that we did, and emergence of ability to integrate with uh, electronics. That's interesting. What, um, you know, to shift gears a little bit, you mentioned Sandeep, and Sandeep Akaraju is our, our CEO currently here with, uh, with Echo. And I think he's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is not the first time you've worked with Sandeep. And, uh, you know, I think you've, uh, you've had a couple, a number of people probably in this company right now that you've worked with on multiple different projects before. Um, you know, what is it like or how common is it, I guess, is the question maybe for people, you know, who, who start a lot of companies and who are, you know, visionaries in this way to work with, you know, kind of the same people and to pull people through and, and you know, collaborate with similar people or the same people, in fact, um, through multiple companies. And it seems that, like I said, you've, you've had some of that uh, overlap in different businesses. And I'm curious what, uh, what your thoughts are in terms of the people. So this is a very interesting question. When you're looking from the perspective of uh, venture capital, uh, typically they require almost that the team has worked together in the past so they know each other. Uh, and from a practical point of view, uh, getting uh, to know uh, the strengths and weakness of your partners is very important. Uh, and in my past, I was typically doing uh, the pre-funding effort, trying to uh, select the co-funding team uh, by the people who could contribute uh, to the progress of the project. So I was coming with an idea and then bringing uh, typically over a period of few months, uh, different people to my home office who were brainstorming the ideas and those that could contribute the most uh, were becoming the part of the funding team. And typically, this, uh, the people that I was talking to were people that we were working in the past. So with Sandeep, I knew him for a long time. Uh, I knew the company that he uh, uh, was involved in, IntelliSense, uh, which was one of the companies that was acquired for almost a billion dollars in early 2000s in the optical bubble. And it was kind of interesting because despite the, the fact that I knew him, uh, uh, when I started to look at the, the previous company uh, to develop the high-performance inertial sensors, uh, I was working with Intercapital. And Intercapital uh, liked uh, the project, but told me uh, that there's another startup working on a similar project in Boston. And this was the uh, company that uh, Sandeep funded. And they recommended that we join resources. 
since we <laughs> since we knew each other uh, we met and we decided to join resources and create the company that we call jive um, this was in 2009 time frame um, my effort was initiated by the request from my previous uh, uh, funding uh, team us venture partners one of the premier uh, venture uh, firms in Silicon Valley. They asked me to start another company focused on uh, motion sensing with low cost and low risk. But this was 2009, and uh, we put together Sandeep, the team that developed the concept of the low cost, low risk transducer. But my uh, venture partners, because in 2009, 2010, in essence, there was no funding of the new startups especially semiconductor startups. Uh, so uh, we were going forward with uh, uh, the development. Uh, our uh, investors were asking us to do more and more and more. Uh, so we were doing more and more and more, but funding was not coming <laughs> from them. We were self-funding it. And uh, what happened was suddenly in June 2010, uh, Steve Jobs introduced uh, iPhone 4. And iPhone 4 had built-in gyroscopes. Within uh, six weeks after this announcement, we got six companies that offered to buy us at the phase when we had just working <laughs> prototypes. And we got three venture firms that gave us a term sheet. The term sheet from Intel wasn't very attractive, so we selected one of the companies that wanted to buy us, Fairchild, that I call mother company uh, in Silicon Valley, which gave birth to over 60 startups in the valley, including Intel, uh, Siliconic, Signetics, uh, National Semiconductor, and, and others. And uh, we got acquired. So we were working mm -hmm. with Sandeep four years at Fairchild, and after four years, we left. Uh, the company uh, had also a number of uh, other uh, executives, uh, which later on left. Fairchild was acquired by OnSemi, and then uh, the business was acquired by Chinese company. So some of the uh, executives from Fairchild left and joined us. So we have a few uh, partners at uh, Echo that work with us at Fairchild and few also that work in other companies with me and some of them with Sandeep. And also uh, the third partner here was Yusuf Haq, who also had few startups behind and uh, many people that we have work with him in the past. So the importance of the people that you work with before is that you know how to work together. So this is reducing one of the risks uh, in the startups and providing faster time uh, to the product. I think it's very important from my perspective. Yeah, I think that's a key point, right? Right, Andy, when you're thinking about it, you know, the team dynamic Past, past performance is a good predictor of future performance. Uh, you've already formed together as a team, so you're faster for sure in the marketplace. It's a, it's a key aspect. It, you know, we should get Sandeep and Giannis together. We'll do a flow chart of how many startups they've been involved in. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it spreads across the Silicon Valley landscape there and, yeah. and where it maps. Yeah, we will talk to Yusuf and we'll talk to Sandeep and, you know, in future future episodes of this and others will we'll definitely bring in uh, folks that, you know, have been part of some of these experiences in the past. So, yeah, with so many different ventures that you've uh, you've uh, either headed or been part of uh, during the course of your career, Giannis, 
you know, is there one that got away? Is there one that you're just too early to the market or you couldn't get the funding for that you kind of kind of wish could have could have got off the ground that, that failed or you could share with us? So uh, I had few failures. And when I was at Stanford, they were teaching us that the failure is a mandatory component of success. And in the venture world, uh, one of the venture firms uh, did the study on 10,000 startups. Uh, and they got the following statistic. This was over 10 years, I think, between uh, 2000 and 2015. Uh, and out of the startups, the success rate for the first-time funders was on the order of 30%. Uh, the success rate of the second-time funders who failed before was something like 38%. And the success rate of the funders who succeeded before was like 42%. So this is kind of interesting uh, confirmation that the failure is a mandatory component of success. And uh, from uh, uh, the companies I founded post, uh, post uh, Stanford, uh, going from the market, uh, probably the biggest uh, uh, disappointment for me was uh, the transparent networks. We developed optical networking. This was uh, the company uh, that I founded in 2000. Again, my investors asked me to fund the company. And uh, uh, when I left the previous one, uh, they told me, don't talk to anybody. We are funding you. I said, I don't know what I want to do. So they said, come back when you want to do so. In, uh, at this time, uh, there was <coughs> a $3 billion acquisition of the company Kairos in Silicon Valley, <coughs> which developed uh, optical networking based on MEMS mirrors. So I decided to develop the better uh, optical switch. I recruited uh, pretty stellar firm, uh, uh, employees. The, one of the guys uh, on optical design that I had uh, was participating in Star Wars on the US side, and I managed to recruit uh, the guy who was participating in the Star Wars on the Soviet Union side, who be uh, left Soviet Union and uh, <laughs> became the professor at Delft University in Netherlands. And uh, when uh, I had the first brainstorming session, when American guy proposed the optical design, the Russian guy said that this is absolutely positively not going to work. And they started to quarrel for, for a day. They couldn't convince each other. So you caused another international incident is what's happened here. All right, good. <laughs> yes. And, Sorry, keep going. <laughs> and the Russian guy said, I will prove to you, because he had the modeling software, optical modeling software, uh, he went to the hotel, uh, modeled the device, came next day, and he said, I want to apologize. It works. <laughs> In the Soviet Union, we never heard about such a solution. So we developed uh, the market-best 1,000-port uh, optical switch. It was the big system. Uh, and we got orders from Japanese firms like Hitachi and Toshiba. Um, and this was 2002. 2001, when we had the system working, it was based on MEMS integrated mirrors, first integrated mirrors in the industry with a closed loop. Uh, and uh, when the optical market started to burst, 
the customers laid off people by thousands, including vice presidents that ordered our device. So all our orders went upside down. We had no orders. We had the system, and we found uh, the company that was interested in technology, Intel. So Intel purchased technology, but we uh, couldn't ship anything. And Intel later on used this technology to uh, go in the direction of uh, optical back backplanes for the computers, for the servers. So we couldn't sell anything, and unfortunately, we had to close the company. So we had potential for a billion-dollar a company that evaporated when the optical bubble burst. Interesting. And it, it kind of, you know, in a sense, it goes back to the, some of the lessons learned at Stanford, right? Where, yeah. you know, it's like if, you, if you're trying to create a better mousetrap and then suddenly there's no more mice, right? It, it does, at some point, the market demand is required, right? At some point, the market is needed to buy it. And uh, although, you know, it's great news that, that obviously at some point it did get you know, utilize the technology itself was able to be utilized by Intel. But, yeah. uh, and also the same technology uh, that we have developed for mirrors was later uh, utilized in gyros uh, and all other companies that we started uh, later on. And uh, I would say there is one more lesson. Higher the award, billion dollar market, billion dollar company, uh, higher the risk because it's much more difficult to get to the huge company. Creating small company uh, is relatively easy. Creating a very large one uh, has uh, few additional risk factors, such as market conditions. Sure. Market has to be big enough to absorb uh, the products. Not to mention dealing with uh, a lot of external factors you had to deal with during your career. You know, you had a tech bubble, you had a great recession, you now got a pandemic. So you know, those are other factors that <laughs> yeah. that uh, yeah. tend to weigh heavily on the, on the outcomes. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because uh, we are in the severe uh, kind of market disruption right now by COVID-19. Uh, COVID and uh, we are, I think, lucky to be in the spot uh, that provides a needed tool for diagnostics of these uh, problems. Uh, ultrasound, especially handheld ultrasound, uh, is becoming essential tool uh, in uh, monitoring uh, the uh, progress of the disease. And I think we will help significantly by adding maybe some additional AI components to simplify diagnosis. Uh, so we are in the position that despite the fact of the overall market uh, co uh, collapse, uh, this bubble for us exists still, and I think we will be very happy to help the world, not only to bring uh, imaging to everybody, but also to help diagnosing the current problem. Right. The, the mm -hmm. principles of abundance uh, kind of come full circle, right? Especially in Correct. times like this. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we're, we're getting down to towards the end of our time, Janusz, and I know we've, we've asked you to talk for a long time here. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously you've had a long uh, you know, a long career, many, many different activities, many different companies, as we said at the outset, and, and I think it's still going on, right? Uh, I think, you know, you're in the middle of this one, and and I think um, everybody that's working with you is curious to see what's next as well. Uh, but if you had to kind of, you know, kind of give a, a little bit of of a lesson or a, a, a moral of the story, you know, with that, that you know, what what is it that you you've taken away from all this and, and what do you think your, you know, your legacy, which clearly is still being written, frankly, but, um, 
you know, what, what is, what would you like your legacy to be kind of in, in the world of starting these companies and bringing something to market and sharing and creating new technologies? So maybe uh, I will answer this in the following ma uh, manner. When uh, a few years ago, uh, we were with Sandeep working, trying to the, uh, do the feasibility study on this uh, transducer uh, that uh, would be the foundation for the imager. Uh, I got a call from Yusuf Haq. Uh, Yusuf uh, used to run data conversion group at Maxim Integrated Products, IC company. He left, he formed a few other companies, uh, and uh, my com one of my companies was acquired by Maxim, so we spent five years together. And uh, he called me and asked me what I am doing because he sold the previous company and he was looking at entering uh, ultrasound market. So when he learned that we are working on the ultrasound imager, he just jumped and he said, uh, I made a lot of chips in the past and it would be nice to give back something to the society. And this project bringing back uh, the imaging uh, capability to entire world, including the 75% of people that don't have it currently, sounds like a fantastic way to give back. So I think what we are doing is fantastic. We are trying to use our experience from the past to enable uh, the technology providing uh, healthcare abundance or the piece of healthcare abundance in the world. And what is kind of interesting, our technology is not only usable for uh, medical imaging, but the reverse of imaging is uh, emerging as one of the biggest uh, new waves of healthcare uh, therapeutics. So uh, the reverse, what I meant, is so-called uh, focus ultrasound. You can, uh, you can focus ultrasound beams in one spot, creating high level of energy or high level of pressure. And this had been already uh, deployed in about 200 applications. And probably one of the most amazing uh, examples of this type uh, of technology is curing uh, brain diseases, uh, where uh, there is an example from Ultrasound Focus Foundation, where in Focus Ultrasound uh, procedure, uh, enabled the person that was on the wheelchair get out of the wheelchair and start walking and shortly thereafter riding the bicycle. I mean, this was just after a procedure of manipulating the brain with the focus ultrasound. Uh, there are multiple other applications of this. We have one of the customers that is already working on it. We have another customer that is thinking of doing this uh, type of applications. And I think uh, what we created is a foundation for imaging and foundation for uh, ultrasound, uh, focused ultrasound applications. So this is fantastic. And I think uh, we may be in the, uh, every office of the medical uh, professional. And on the top of this, probably uh, very soon we can start bringing this type of technology to, uh, to homes. Uh, there are already some signs of uh, early applications for monitoring baby health during the pregnancy with the imager, uh, personal imager at home, and the home market could create growth 
of these applications to billions, bringing, in a sense, uh, bits and pieces of healthcare abundance. Yeah, you know, and I think what it's what's interesting is that you're not just you 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 can't look at all these different companies that you've created as completely independent, right? Data points. They they're actually and you couple that with the people, right? That are coming along with the journey. You know that you've worked with many many times, and then you you couple that with the experiences and the tech, even specifically some of the technology that you've developed over time and in, as part of these groups. It's all kind of cumulatively adding to something now that you're able to do that's bringing healthcare to you know to to billions of people potentially here as we as we go forward, and that's a you know that's a, a pretty significant legacy to, to 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 leave. It's not just you know lucking into something right and developing a technology that can help a lot of people and saying that's a one-time event. It's actually a a result and a summation of all that experience. All those people you've worked with that that are still working with you today, um, and and bringing that into something that's very meaningful for uh, for the population of the world, it's very interesting. Yeah, and it, it led to a technology pivot. All the experience that you formerly had with CMUT devices, you knew that the limitations were there. That you pivot to a, a PMUT device to to be able to solve the the problem is. Uh, Something that comes from experience and numerous different iterations of, uh, of uh, companies. And this comes kind of also back to the Stanford recommendation, uh, develop technology that solves the problem instead of just using uh, the technology. So the different, we started with CMAT with Sandeep because it was easier for us. Uh, we had a, a pretty extensive experience with our people in capacitive devices, but uh, it didn't quite solve all the problems. And PMAT solves the problems that CMAT has. So uh, we developed the technology that was exactly delivering the solution. Right. Sometimes the uh, solving big, big problems means, you know, solving big problems, <laughs> right? Solving big problems in the world means solving big problems in technology and not taking the easy route. And, uh, and I feel like that's, uh, that's going to pay off for, uh, for you and this company. So uh, thank you, Yanish. I appreciate you taking all the time today to talk with us here. And uh, for everybody else out there, hope you enjoyed this discussion. And, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you, Yanish. Thank you, Yanish. Thank you. Thank you.